Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, April 17th, 2014. Now, this will be the last episode of the week. I will not be in studio on Good Friday. In fact, as you're hearing this, I'm already in North Dakota. That's right, this is a Memorex episode of Fighting for the Faith. But it's just a quick turnaround trip. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up our Bible and compare and expose the false teachers and the charlatans and those who are making merchandise of you and those who are leading you astray and taking your eyes off of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. Now, this week is a very important week. Uh, Tomorrow is Good Friday, and um, I'm going to leave you off with several good sermons. In fact, let's talk about what we're going to do in hour number two first. Um, yeah, we'll kind of work backwards today. Yeah, there's three things we're going to do today, but although hour number two is going to feel like seven things, <laughs> let me explain why. Um, I know that many of you who listen to Fighting for the Faith, you don't listen the day that the program is broadcast. I understand that. That's okay. Um, I know that many of you will actually be listening to this episode of Fighting for the Faith on Good Friday. And Good Friday, I got to tell you, th- that is... Good Friday and Easter Sunday are literally the most important days to me in like out of all of, you know, all of the days of the year. And, uh, and so, you know, this, this is one of those days where, you know, the place I want to be is church. Let's just put it that way. And uh, since it's the most important event, I mean, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, dying on the cross for our sins. This is, you know, what should be our focus, uh, what we meditate on, what we're really focusing in on, uh, you know, on Good Friday. I, I can't, yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's the kind of preaching that, you know, I'll be, I'll be blunt. I mean, it tears me up every single time, and it tears me up in just the right way. Because over and again, Jesus Christ is placarded for me, especially on Good Friday, as my great God and Savior who bled and died for my sins. So what we're going to do in hour number two is we're going to 
uh, travel up to Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, to Our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, which is just a fantastic little congregation. And I taught there a few years back, and they, they have some of the most amazing liturgical art uh, you know, inside of their congregation. There's photographs of it, too, if you wanted to visit it. Uh, their, their, their website is uh, OurSavior-GR.org, OurSavior-GR.org. Or you can just type in Our Savior Lutheran Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan, in Google, and you can, and you can pull it up. And then when you go to the About Us uh, tab on their homepage, uh, there's a little uh, section that says Art. You, you you click on the art and it'll take a few seconds for it to load. I don't know what kind of program they're using to load up the uh, the photographs in the background, but it does take a a little bit of time for everything to kind of load up before it shows up. So if you're thinking, well, there's nothing on this page, just give it a minute. Just give it a minute as it loads up, and you can see the the example of the, the their. Oh man, it's just amazing, amazing what they have. On, uh, what in fact, what is this called? The the Tadeum Poly. Tick. Yeah, I can't even pronounce that. Uh, by the uh, artist Ed uh, Riojas. Um, and it's, oh man, I, I've seen this thing in person. It's just absolutely amazing. But what we're going to be doing in hour number two is we are going to hear a series of seven short um, Good Friday sermons. And they're based upon the seven words of of Jesus on the cross, the seven words of Jesus on the cross. And each sermon is by a different pastor, and it's from a a, a treore uh, service. And, man, this is just the greatest way to end off the week. And uh, like I said, I know a lot of you are going to be listening to this on Good Friday. This is what you want in your ears. This is what you want in your mind. This is what you want where you want to be focused on Good Friday, so I, I'm very excited about this, and uh, and so that will be our good sermon sermons, seven of them, seven short little sermons, each of them on uh, one of you know Jesus' seven words from the cross. And Jesus' seven words: first word is "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Second word: "Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise." The third is Jesus said to his uh, to his mother, woman, this is your son. Then he said to to the disciple, this is your mother. Um, and then the fourth is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth word is, I thirst. Sixth word is, uh, they put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and handed over his spirit. And the last the seventh word is Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Each, there's these short sermons on each of these seven words from the cross. So that's what we're gonna, how we're going to end off this week at Fighting for the Faith. And I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to broadcast these for you today. Now that being said, so, so you want the good news first or the bad news? I gave you the good news first. Uh, yeah, we still have a little bit of work that we got to do in hour number one. And so what we're going to do in hour number one, we actually have two things that we're going to be doing, although there's kind of a, a bonus third thing that we're, we're going to be doing. I'll explain that in a second. Um, we're going to begin with um, Paula White. Uh, yeah, Paula White of uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network, Paula White of, of her Paula Today program, um, literally fleecing the uh, her television audience in the name of Jesus 
you know, uh, talking about the Passover and how uh, the Passover is all about, you know, you make you you meeting particular appointments with God. We've covered her teaching this heresy in the past here at Fighting for the Faith, and it's worth reviewing uh, because there are a lot of people out there who fall for this type of teaching, and it's absolutely false, and God does not want you to send your money to a televangelist this Passover, especially Paula White. So uh, we'll be doing that. And then in the break, uh, we're going to be premiering a brand-new Max Holiday sketch. And if you think back a couple weeks ago, uh, we did a Beth Moore update, and during that Beth Moore update, you know, she literally was preaching the story of Naaman and had the people in her audience, you know, basically take out the a couple of words from a, a verse there in scripture and then insert their own words and my quip was what is this bible mad libs well <clears throat> you know thanks to intrepid listeners and uh, creative types out there um we've uh, we we've basically concocted uh, a new max holiday sketch and the name of the sketch is beth moore's Bible Mad Libs. That's the name of the sketch, and we will be premiering that in the uh, in the first break today. And then when we come back from the break, we will actually do an extended Beth Moore update, taking a look as she continues to supposedly preach on the story of Naaman. Um, and, and, of course, the question is, with each successive week that she's supposedly preaching on Naaman, we're getting farther and farther and farther away from the story of Naaman and in you know in more and more narcissistic eisegesis on her part. So that's what's going to be the program today. Recommend that you uh, make yourself comfortable. We have a lot of ground to cover and uh, since we're starting off with a money grubbing televangelist update, well, we got to do this. <laughs> That's Dr. Teeth and money, money, money. That's Dr. Teeth of the Muppet Show, by the way. All right, so we're going to be listening to a portion of Paula White's Paula Today program. And in this uh, video that we are going to be listening to, Paula White is going to be explaining to us why we need to make God's specific appointed appointment times with us and uh, regarding the Passover, and require apparently God requires us to send Paula White our best Passover offering right now. So <clears throat> to explain all of this, here's Paula White. We're going to talk about foundational concepts, understanding God's timing, his rhythms, his principles, and his patterns. God himself has set up a holy season. They are what is called the Feast of God. There are actually three feast seasons, seven feasts, which we'll talk about. 
Passover is the very first one. It is the beginning of the divine appointments that God has set up with man. Now, I want to point something out here. You'll notice that her audio sounds a little weird. It's like she's broadcasting from a kitchen or something. That's because she's broadcasting from her kitchen. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works. Anyway, so that's why this is, you know, the, the, the audio is as bad as it is. So she's going to explain to us about understanding divine seasons in the Passover and the beginning of, a, of divine appointments that God has set up with man. This is her classic false preaching and teaching on this concept here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says this, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Okay, now notice she starts with Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season. Um, yeah, but Ecclesiastes chapter 3 has nothing to do with us meeting the appointed season of Passover and sending money to a televangelist. I know you're thinking, well, she hasn't said that yet. You know, just trust me, I know it's coming. You'll hear it. God is a God of timing. He's very strategic. He's calculated. He's concise. There's a rhythm. He has a calendar. He has set appointments. When you begin to understand, as Ezekiel even said, he's a wheel within a wheel. He sits in eternity, but he created time and space for man. So there's a time to everything that is under heaven. God so there's a pr principle number one. There's a time, and a, every, a time and a place for everything under heaven. Okay, all right. So God created time for our benefit. So the, okay, all right. So let me get my day planner out since God created time. Created time for our benefit. What do you mean by that? <clears throat> Notice in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, it says to everything and to every purpose. Timing does not just apply to some things, but it applies to everything and to every purpose. Just like we measure the rotation of the earth, time is cyclical. Just like how we measure the month by a lunar cycle, time is cyclical. Just like we measure the year by the revolution of the earth's orbit around the sun, time is cyclical. It cycles. In fact, when you see a person with a wedding ring on... You know, what's funny is, is that her heresies are kind of cyclical too. It's weird that how that works out. It's a circle because circles indicate eternity and circles are cycles. Cycles are circles. That's why, again, God said he's a wheel. Yeah, this, this, this teaching has got me all spun around. Whoop, getting dizzy here. In a wheel, everything is cyclical or circle about God. That's, that's eternity. And ultimately, God wants to manifest eternity into the earthly realm. So the cycles and repeating patterns show themselves evident in events of our practical day living. Things like this. Our cycle of sleep refreshes us as we wake up with rest each day. Our weekly cycle marks how many work days and rest days we have. A woman's biological cycle determines procreation in her and the timing of procreation. Our weather cycles cause the planet to make things grow and to yield crops and fruits. To everything, there is a season or a set time or a cycle or a circle or eternity. Yeah. So She's spinning me around here. Okay, so notice she's spending a lot of time on talking about the cycles and the circles and the... Okay, yeah, but Ecclesiastes chapter 3 has nothing to do with us sending money to a televangelist. And this is where she's going. Uh, she's basically building, if you would, a theology 
but it's a theology with verses ripped out of context that have nothing to do with this. I mean, I guarantee if you were to go in the book of Ecclesiastes, you would find nothing in Ecclesiastes saying, at the time of the Passover, be sure to send your money to a televangelist. God is showing us he is the God of eternity, but he works in cycles. Now, cycles, rhythms, and timing like everything in God's word is always working for you or against you. If you don't understand what time it is, you miss a moment. The last thing you want to do is miss a God moment. So timing and cycles are very significant to us. So if they're significant to show us, like a woman gets this, that she has a cycle every month. Um, a farmer gets this, that there's a time to sow and there's a time to reap. You know, a, a person who is an astronomer gets this. They understand the way that the planets and the sun and the earth and everything rotates. So if we begin to understand that God is a God of cycles, circles, eternity, then why do we think it's so strange if this is a natural law that causes everything to function that it would not be a spiritual law? <clears throat> Notice what she said there. So why would we think it's so strange if this is a natural law that this wouldn't be a spiritual law? Uh, you, this is not how you do Christian theology, okay? Christian theology isn't started by finding a verse out of context, ignoring what it says, really, and what it's actually teaching, and then extrapolating from that some kind of logical conclusion whereby I can take a leap of faith into the spiritual realm. This is real simple. If God wants me to send my money to a televangelist every Passover, his word would actually say it, and I wouldn't need Paula White sitting here talking about circles and cycles and spinning me over and over. I feel like I'm going to throw up. It's like, let me off the right. I'm I'm all dizzy, right? Um, but see, this is this is a technique, a technique for building a false theology. That, and this is just a classic, quintessential example of that. Again, Ecclesiastes 3 has nothing to do with sending your money to a televangelist during the Passover. Now, let me, let me see if I can just back this up a few seconds so you can, again, kind of see what she does here. She's got this verse out of context, and now she makes this connection where she's going to go, you know, basically say, well, if this works in the natural realm... It must work in the spiritual realm as well, right? Uh-huh. Again, if this was actually a doctrine that we're supposed to follow, God's word would say it very clearly. It's so strange if this is a natural law that causes everything to function that it would not be a spiritual law. God in his infinite wisdom has brought to us certain seasons, set times. So what are those seasons? What's the timing? What's the rhythms of God? It's kind of like you'll hear me say, learn to get your groove on. You learn how to, those that are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. Being led by the Spirit of God means there's a rhythm to everything. So when you begin to understand the feast, which all of Israel designed their worship around feast, and I'll teach you later what feast means, because the actual word means a divine appointment. When we begin to study the feast, or what I'll teach you later, or the divine appointments of God. Now, let's make this clear. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 makes it very clear. In no un, uh, unambiguous, no ambiguous terms that um, the Old Testament feasts and laws and in the you know, temple ceremony, all that kind of stuff, those were all type and shadow that point us to Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. Okay, 
you know, for instance, the uh, the Passover. Okay, you got the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb on the door, the destroyer passes over. All of that, the the Passover lamb is a type and shadow of Christ. Christ now is our Passover lamb. And it's his blood over us that covers us and protects us from the destroyer so that we're not destroyed. You see how that works? Yeah. And so she's going back into Old Testament types and shadows and preying on people's biblical ignorance and saying, well, look, it's in the Bible. And the, and the word for feast, it means divine appointment. Really, what? Which lexicon says that? But um, anyway, so she's, oh, it means divine appointments. So that's, the feasts are there so that we can make our divine appointments because God wants to bless us with something. And see, that's the whole idea. And what she's basically doing is this is just a, a, a scam. It's a complete biblical scam in order to fleece people out of their money. So they the, 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 the money leaves the audience's wallets and ends up in Paula White's bank account. That's what this is all about. When you quickly begin to understand the significance of times and seasons, the timing, the set time, you don't miss in a moment with God. If it's important to God, it must become important to us. So let's look at the eternal perspective of time. Because remember, God sits outside of time, but he created time for man. He created space for man. So we exist within time. The moment you were born, you clocked into your purpose or you clocked into time. The book of Hebrews says every man, there's an appointed time to die. When you die, you clock out of time. You go back to eternity, back to Christ from where you came from you came from eternity you live within time um i didn't pre-exist in eternity none of us did are you a mormon i mean humans didn't pre-exist we didn't come from eternity whoo this is really bad Return to eternity. So right now, even as I am teaching you the cycles of time and set seizing, you are in a time. That moment will never come back. You are in time right now. Where you are right now is the sliver of time that we call present. Or the uh-huh. Well, she sure is talking a lot about time, isn't she? I mean, why doesn't she just go to the Bible verse that says it's Passover, send your money to a televangelist so that you can be blessed? moment it's now and it is in this present that you and i exist constantly our present is moving and changing we just lost two seconds ago that moment's already behind us that's the past and the future is two seconds in front of us so you've got to grab that it's a right now think about the book of hebrews in chapter 11 it says now faith see faith activates in the present it's not something of the past it's not something <laughs> yeah Woo. That's one of the most absurd (laughs) Bible twists I've ever seen. Did you catch that? She said, Hebrews chapter 11 says, now faith. See, because it's faith in the present, you know, and she keeps snapping her fingers. Um, Yeah, let's, (laughs) man, Uh, let's (laughs) take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. Man, that is awful. Okay, (laughs) she didn't even quote the whole verse. She's supposedly took two words from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, listen to this. As I'm reading this, ask yourself this question. Is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, teaching us that we now have to have faith in the now, the, the present, and, and you know that kind of thing? In fact, in order to do this, I better add a little bit more context now that I'm thinking about it. You know, our, our three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, 
and context. So I need to go back to chapter 10. Um, yeah, here we go. All right. So <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10. How much far, how far do I want to go back? Yeah, let's go. Let's do this. Okay. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Here's what it says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plunder of your property since you knew that you, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming and and the coming uh, one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Okay, I read it. It was right there. It said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And it does, this is not, Hebrews 11.1 1 isn't talking about faith in the, you know, you got to grab it in the now. And I'm snapping my fingers because she's snapping hers. So what I'm going to do is back this up a little bit. So now you know what a Hebrews 11.1 1 says in context. You can see, you can understand exactly what techniques she's using to twist God's word to make it say something it don't say. Hebrews 11.1 1 is not about now faith. Um, yeah, that's quite the Bible verse twist. L- listen again. It's now. And it is in this present that you and I exist. Constantly our present is moving and changing. We just lost two seconds ago. That moment's already behind us. That's the past. And the future is two seconds in front of us. So you've got to grab that it's a right now. Think about the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. It says, now faith. See, faith activates in the present. It's not something of the past. It's not something in the future. It's a now move. It's a now thing. Yeah, and now you've just totally twisted God's word. Ooh, yeah, you're going to have to give an accounting to Christ for your mishandling of his word if you don't repent. Now, you're thinking, what is all of this leading up to? Well, I'm glad you asked what it is actually leading up to. All of this is a very slow and laborious um, thing on her part because what she's really trying to do is convince people that they have a divine appointment right now with God. And that divine appointment has to do with the Passover. And uh, and so you 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 don't want to miss your divine appointment. No, 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 no. You, you And in order to make your divine appointment, what you got to do is you got to send Paula White your best Passover seed offering right now. That means send her money because apparently that's what all of this is leading up to because God – it, you know, in, in instituting the Passover, created times and seasons and made an appointment with that you need to keep with him. And the way you keep that appointment is by sending Paula White money. And then when you send her money, God's going to release blessings to you. Thinking, really, is it that crass? Yeah, it's really that crass. Here, listen.
Our salvation and wholeness begins and ends with the blood covenant of Jesus Christ, who became our Passover. God declares in Exodus 12, 24, and you shall observe this as an ordinance forever. We must recognize that God's appointment with us is an opportunity to honor Him for what He has done in our lives, and it will release great blessings and benefits. You can release specific supernatural blessings for your household, finances, and future. Exodus- yeah, release blessings. Uh-huh. Okay. Really, how do I do that? says he will assign an angel to you be an enemy to your enemies give you prosperity take sickness away give you a long life bring increase in inheritance and give a special year of blessing all right so let's see if i got this right so if i send if i make if i meet this divine appointment that apparently i have with god um, during the passover season and i send paula white money God's going to assign an angel to me. He'll be an enemy to my enemies. He'll give me prosperity. He'll take away sickness, give me a long life, and uh, bring increase in inheritance to me, and then give me a special year of blessing. All if I send Paula White money? Really? Wow. Who knew that's what the Bible taught? Declared, none shall appear before me empty-handed. God gave us his very best, Jesus Christ. Give God your very best Passover offering this season and stand in position to release the supernatural blessings. When you give your very best Passover offering unto the Lord, we will rush to you our brand new two-CD series on Passover. In- yeah, so you give your very best Passover seed offering unto the Lord <clears throat> by sending it to Paula White. And as soon as you do that, Paula White's going to send you a CD. Two CDs on her teaching on the Passover. <clears throat> yeah. Um, boy. And if you believe that God's going to release all of these special blessings to you, if you send money to Paula White, oh, well, um, you're probably going to perish with your money. Um, and I'd like to sell you a bridge in Brooklyn. It's gorgeous. Absolutely. And in, in our deco, oh, man, <laughs> you're going to like this bridge. And I can give it to you on the cheap. <sighs> wow. Yeah, um, that's not blasphemous what we heard at all, now was it? No, actually, it was completely blasphemous. And yet, the body of Christ continues to put up with charlatans like this, absolutely puts up with them, and calls people who call, who say what they are, false teachers, calls people like me, you know, haters, divisive, and things like that. Weird, isn't it? Strange days we live in, yet... Paula White's going to have to give an accounting to God for all of this false teaching that she's giving out in order to make merchandise of people who are Christians. Pray that she repents and she's forgiven because Christ bled and died for even that sin. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, Beth Moore update. And during the break, the premiere of a new Max Holiday sketch, Beth Moore's Bible Mad Libs. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Ah! <laughs> 
Theatre presents Church Day Select. I don't know why we have to come to these small group sessions. They're just so boring. Hey, do you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore? That's quite literally what I just said. Then we have the product just for you. New from Los Lobos Ministries is Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs. Well, what is it? Simple. Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? Not if you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. But now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern-day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad Libs in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait, doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor. You're not going to get away with this. You can't stop us. We're already in control. Resistance is futile. more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. back 
warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith will constitute become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite Bible-twisting televangelist who's telling you you need to send in Passover seed offerings to them. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a Beth Moore update. I just picture Beth Moore as a hummingbird zipping around the room, able to narsagite a biblical passage faster than a hummingbird on monster energy drinks. (sighs) (laughs) The music makes me tired. I want to go to bed. I need a nap now. Okay, so what we're going to be listening to uh, from Beth Moore is another installment from the Life Today uh, television program, and it's Beth Moore discussing, um, well, continuing her series, if you would, on Clayman Naaman. Okay, she's supposedly teaching the story of Naaman the leper, Um, but (laughs) here we are in week three of this particular teaching, and... (laughs) She is getting farther and farther away from the actual story itself. It's actually kind of frightening because, uh, you know, at this point it doesn't even it doesn't even begin to look like a story about Naaman. I mean, she's so far away from the biblical text because she's so read us into this text, you know, using the biblical Mad Libs technique that we uh, featured last time. That oh man. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and actually teach the story now because, I mean, what you're going to hear is like, (laughs) I don't know where the connection point is anymore to the actual text. But uh, here's Beth Moore from the Life Today television program and Claim and Name in Part 3. Here we go. This is the revelation that I think somebody needs to get today is that almost every single one of us feels like a misfit. This is the secret that we're going to say out loud because what our leprosy, whatever it is, and I hope you're thinking that through, our leprosy is that thing that makes us feel like we don't really fit. I, I want to ask you a question because I... <laughs> it's like... Oh, man. <laughs> okay, I'm having one of those things where I'm like my skin is crawling and I could I can't even get out of my skin and just get the heebie-jeebies here. Okay. 
Okay, if you have your Bible, Second Kings chapter 5. Okay, where is she getting this thing about we being misfits? It does You can't read this from this text. Let me read the text again. It's been a couple of weeks since I've done this. Second Kings chapter 5, verse 1. It's a great story, by the way. Wonderful passage of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and cleansing. And oh, it's just a great story. Anyway, here, here's the story. Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man at, with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on, on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Oh, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. <sighs> so here, okay, you can just go pause there for a second. Here's this little slave girl. And you know, this is an Israelite girl. She's been separated from her family. She's been carried off and made a slave. And she's there serving in her little vocation as a servant. And she says, oh, in just beautiful childlike faith. The prophet could heal Naaman. There's a prophet in Samaria. He could do it. And she just has ultimate faith and trust in the Lord, right? And the Lord's prophet. I mean, this is great. So so there's good news here coming from this unnamed little girl, right? It's that, oh, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so, and spoke, spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And, I mean... Think about this. <laughs> so here's a little slave girl, and Naaman goes, oh, that makes sense to me. I'll go talk to the king. The king said, yeah, all right, go. So, and so the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. He's thinking he's going to, you know, this has got to be the offering, right, to the God of Israel, right? So he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. See, Elisha didn't even come out. Well, he can't. The law forbids him. I mean, Naaman's a leper. He's unclean, right? So Naaman was angry, and he went away saying, Behold, I, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are, are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Well, let, let's answer his question. Could Naaman go back to Syria? And wash in the Abana 
or the Farpar River and be clean? Answer, no, he couldn't. Which river was the promise of God through the prophet attached to? It was attached to the Jordan. Yep, so he couldn't wash in those other places and be clean. Because God's promise was attached only to the Jordan. So he turned and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My my father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? (sighs) So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God. He and all of his company, he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. And in this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha said to him, Go in peace. What a great story. There God takes this Gentile soldier, this Gentile man who had enslaved one of the daughters of Israel. That's what he's done. He's, you know, he leads these raids against Israel, right? And he's a leper, and he comes at the request of the childlike faith of the little girl that he had taken as a slave. And he's upset, and he's angry at the word of the Lord to go wash in the Jordan seven times, and yet there was a clear promise from God through the prophet attached to the Jordan. And when his servants prevail upon him, and he goes, he dips seven times, and his flesh is not just restored, but he's given repentant faith in the one true God. And he comes out a believer. What an amazing story. And, I mean, it's a beautiful confession of faith. Wonderful confession of faith. And he's already in, got in mind, oh, oh, man, I've got duties in that stupid Rimon's temple. It's part of my job. And he's asking for forgiveness ahead of time, knowing that he has official duties where he actually has to bow himself in the temple of Rimon. But he doesn't believe in Rimon. He now knows that there's no other God except for Yahweh. And he asks for pardon. And he gets that pardon. He says, go in peace. And see, each and every one of us were brought to penitent faith in Christ. Our sins are washed away. And we hear from God, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. 
you've been made alive, you've been healed, you've been cleansed, you've been made whole by the blood of Christ. See, this all points to Jesus. Great story. Why isn't Beth Moore preaching this? Why isn't she teaching this? How is she talking about us being misfits from this text? This is the text she's supposedly teaching on. But her message sounds nothing like the details of this biblical story. What is going on here? We continue. I think this will be insightful. How many of you have had the thought go through your mind in the course of the last two weeks? I wish so much I could see you answer this. How many of you have had the thought in the last two weeks, I don't fit here? Is there anybody who's been in a situation, whether at work, whether in your friendships, whether at your school, wherever it may be, that you have had that conscious thought, maybe in a church, and you've just thought, I don't fit. I don't fit. Here's the revelation. People that feel fitted are the ones that really don't fit. Because the truth of it is, across the board, we all struggle with this thing inside of us that says, I don't fit. I don't fit in this family. Um, I got teased a lot in my family growing up because I was the only blonde in a family full of very, very dark brunettes. And so the thing was, where did you come from? And it was just a tease. But it was that feeling all of my brothers and sisters were very musically talented. Not one iota of it hit me. I love music, but I'm not a musician of any kind. And so it was just this misfit, misfit, constant misfit. But the truth of it is we are misfits. All of us feel that way. What does this have to do with the story of Naaman? I mean, this, the, I just read the text she's supposedly teaching from. Where is she getting any of this? There's something that constantly reminds us we don't fit. And here's what I want to suggest to you. I do believe God wants to deal with us on our leprosy. But if you and I are thinking that God is going to deliver us from every single thing that makes us feel like we don't fit here on planet Earth, then you're out of your darling little mind. Because the truth of it is, theologically, biblically, we do not fit here. This is not our home. what does this have to do with this? How did she get here? This is ridiculous. Hebrews 11 tells us that, that they, the people of faith, they longed for a better country. Let me tell you something. There is so misunder- such misunderstanding of the whole concept of longing that it's what causes many people to marry, divorce, marry, divorce, marry, divorce, marry, divorce, marry, divorce, um, uh, get in a heavy relationship, break up, get in another one, break up, get in another one, break up, get in another one, break up. Go for what? Do you, what do you think the word count is you know, per second here? I mean, we're getting like gusts up to 50, 60,000 miles per minute, you know, words per second here. This is what? And we're so far away from the text that she's supposedly teaching from. You see, the problem is, is she thinks that this text is something about her. Hmm. Yeah, she's she's so far astride because she's put herself into this text. Kind of Stephen Furtick narcissistic eisegesis style. We continue. Job to job to job to job, church to church to church to church, because they cannot identify their longing. 
You've got something in you that will not be satiated until you get to your real home. We are citizens of a different country. We don't fit here. So if we keep going from relationship or place to place looking for where we're going to fit, we're going to do this all our lives. I'm not saying God doesn't lead us elsewhere. But I'm saying if it's all based on the fact that, you know, I just cannot get completely happy. I cannot tell you how many young women will tell me I'm just... I just, I'm just not, I'm not completely happy in my relationship with my husband. Is he a good man? Yes. Oh, he's a good man. And I love to ask you, you know, are you fairly, do you have a fair amount of faith in common? They, they might say, yes, yes, but I'm just not, I'm not completely happy. I, you know, I am not really, you know, I, I like to be your cheerleader. I don't like to be um, the bubble buster, but I need to bust somebody's bubble for their own good for just a minute here. You're not going to be completely happy here. We will have many moments of bliss. I have some moments with my grandchildren that feel almost like my skin is going to split. <laughs> I just, I am dumbfounded. I, again, what does this have to do with the story of Naaman? Because it's just so right. Moments of uh, just, I'd almost call it a perfect moment. But it never stays. I can't hang on to it. I'll look at all my people sometimes and we're all laughing and talking. I walked out the other day. I just had my girls all to myself. My man was out of town. Uh, Their husbands were doing things. And so I just somehow unplanned. My two adult daughters were at my house. I walked out on the back porch. We got a little fireplace on the back porch my husband put in for us. And they're out there and they're just almost face to face just talking a hundred miles an hour. I stood there, took it in because it was a, a moment of bliss. But in a little while, they got up and went. (laughs) Because we get these moments. We're misfit because we have got eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes said. When uh, Melissa was six years old and in the first grade, uh, she was hospitalized for something called rotavirus. It's where a kid starts throwing up and days later they are still throwing up. And we were just so concerned for her. Put her in the hospital. She was in it almost a solid week. Her first grade class made her cards out of construction paper. And to this day, they are some of the sweetest things I have in my treasure trove. And what does this have to do with helping me understand the story of the healing of Naaman? of keepsakes for my children. I wish so much I had thought to bring it because one was just a very basic card, uh, not a lot written on it, just a few words. It just said on the inside of it, it said, I thrupped too. <laughs> it was spelled phonetically, T-H-R-U-P-T, I thrupped too. And you know what? That was my favorite card. <laughs> Because she entered in. Everybody else was sorry she was sick. Now, the audience there of uh, women, they're just really just tracking with Beth Moore here and loving the story. I mean, she's she's got all of them feeding right out of her hand. And, of course, I'm looking at this going, and what does this have to do with Naaman? You're not teaching me the Bible. At all. 
You're supposed to be this amazing biblical teacher, an amazing female exegete. I'm not seeing any evidence of it. I see you basically telling all of these really entertaining stories about yourself, and you kind of have that ah shucks Texas thing going on there, and and um, you know, and you're just connecting with all of these women. You know, this is women's ministry, right? But you're not teaching them nothing, nothing about what this text actually is about. How can that be? But Jennifer, she throbbed too. Now, I don't know what you need from people. But when I'm going through a difficult time, when I'm really hard on myself, it would help me for someone to just go, I throb too. It doesn't help me just go, I'm so sorry, you lame, lame soul. I just need somebody to go, I throb too. Look at one another and say, I throb too. <laughs> Annabeth, my, my granddaughter Annabeth is... Uh, now you're going to tell another story. You're going to tell a story about one of your grandchildren. Okay. We're learning nothing. Nothing. Absolutely zero about what God's word says here. Oh, but it sure is entertaining. Oh, they are laughing at all the right points. She's just, oh, I got them engaged. And then they're going to go home and think, you know... Um, what 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 was that story about? Name it again. You know, I I can't remember. Almost four years old, and she is just delicious. Oh, I am so crazy about her. But you know, girls, uh, I mean, they just never ever close their mouth, especially in my family. And I bet you don't have trouble picturing that. But um, she was in the back seat. Amanda had uh, Annabeth and uh, her best friend Ellison in the car, uh, bringing them home for Mother's Day out. And uh, so um, Ellison is a little bit younger. And you know, to a little bitty kid, any older is just like, I'm so sophisticated and so much more than you. And they normally just play beautifully together. But for some reason, it was just on Annabeth to be just a little bit uh, proud of herself. And she told Ellison, she put it this way. This is, you know, we do try to always have our manners where I'm coming from. She said, when you're old enough, you can come to my ballet class with me and all my friends. Well, Amanda said the part that bothered Amanda the most was the all my friends part. Because she's like, okay, now wait, okay. So she says to Annabeth, um, honey, and who are your friends at ballet? And so she said Annabeth went silent for a few seconds and, then, and she went, gula, mula, shula, lula. And Tula. And I mean, Amanda said, like, she thought they were going to go for it. Amanda said it was quintuplets gone all wrong. It was just the funniest thing. And as cute as that story is about Annabeth, your granddaughter, um, yeah, I've learned nothing, not a thing, about what the story you're supposedly exegeting from. Second Kings chapter five is actually about. And don't you think that's a problem? I think it's a problem because the one who preaches and teaches God's word is handling the very words of God. You dare not twist them. You dare not change the message. These words were inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. The job of a careful exegete and teacher in the Church of Christ 
is to rightly handle those texts and to point people to their Savior, not themselves. Hmm. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Seven short little great sermons regarding Christ's crucifixion and the seven words from the cross. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. ThinkGeek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We will be listening to seven, that's right, seven short, fantastic sermons. All of them preached on Good Friday. All of them about Jesus Christ. But let's do this right.
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons comes to us via Our Savior Lutheran Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Each sermon is based upon one of the seven words spoken by Jesus on the cross while he was being crucified. Each sermon is preached by a different pastor, and what I will be doing is introducing each of the pastors in succession as we listen to these sermons. Kind of a weird way of doing it. Now, the service that they were preaching at literally took three hours. It took three hours to do this service. Between the scripture reading, the hymns, and the sermons, the entire event is a three-hour-long service. And if you have not been to one of these things, they are amazing. Let me go ahead and kill the music here and uh, and introduce to you who we will be listening to. Sermon number one is by Pastor James Blaine, Pastor James Blaine, and he will be preaching on the first word of Christ from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Here is Pastor James Blaine. Sanctify them by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Amen. In the ancient world and up to modern times, executions were one of the greatest forms of entertainment. As a boy in Iowa in 1964, I remember when they broadcast the final hanging at the prison in Fort Madison, Iowa. It wasn't on television, but everybody was paying attention to the radio that day. People loved to watch executions. It was also a time that people thought if there was going to be any truth spoken at all, when a man faces death, he is certainly going to say what is good and right. Or else, you're going to hear the worst kind of stevedore language you've ever heard in your life, one or the other. The people who came out to see Jesus crucified, which Mark tells us happens at the third hour, nine in the morning, the people had come out there to see quite a show. You might ask yourself at this point, what are you doing here? Are you here for a show? Or do you want God to look at you as though you are the center of the show? Christ is the one we have to be listening to very carefully. At this point, in spite of his weakness of all of the things that had been done to him and all the bloodletting and carrying the cross, to which he at one point could no longer do it, he finally gets to Golgotha, and he is nailed and affixed to this cross and hung up between heaven and earth. And it's clear from this text that it is very soon, right after being lifted up between heaven and earth, that now he speaks for the first time. This is not unusual, because at this point, a crucifixion victim had at least a little bit of power in his lungs that he could speak a little bit. You can imagine... People were telling each other to be quiet. He's going to say something. It's important. 
Father is who he addresses, not the crowds. He is not saying anything vindictive against those who had put him in this position, although he easily could have. There is no cursing, there is no damning. There are no wild cries for himself. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, is ignorance really a reason to be let off? Does stupidity save you from hell? If you're a blooming idiot and you don't know what's going on from stem to stern, does that really get you into heaven and eternal life? Jesus is not making a prayer here for us to be saved based on our stupidity. Although we are. We listen to the wrong things, believe the wrong things, are drawn to the wrong things. We listen to our own heart's desire, which is usually off kilter. We don't know what we're doing. Only the law would tell us that it's wrong. Although if you claim that you don't know the Ten Commandments, that doesn't work either. Because Paul reminds us we have the law of God written in our hearts. Our consciences are constantly either accusing or excusing us. And the only way you can really be totally stupid is if as you have a conscience that has been sheared, that's been seared by evil, that you can no longer tell right and wrong. When you go to bed at night, therefore do not plead ignorance. That's not going to work. And certainly don't base that kind of prayer on what Jesus is praying here. As for those who are putting him in this situation, they are not ignorant or stupid. They know exactly what they are doing. The Jewish authorities had been planning this for a long time. The trial had been planned. The false witnesses had been planned. The only thing they weren't planning on was the fact that two on the high council would actually cross-examine the witnesses and find them false so that the people that should have died based on that trial should have been all the false witnesses and by virtue of the connection those who had put him up to it. No, they knew exactly what they were doing. Well, what about Pilate? He seems to be rear-ended on this thing as though he doesn't know what's going on. Well, think again. He always had spies. He was a smart politician. He knew exactly what was going on and what kind of trouble this Jesus could cause. And even though he does try to get him off, at least making a show of it, in the end, the public good comes first. The peace of Rome is above everything else. It is indeed, as the Jewish authorities had said, it's expedient for one man to die instead of the entire nation. And what about us? Who is it that puts him there but all of us? Now, it's not as though he is forced. He's going willingly. But we're the ones who put him there. We know full well when we sin, and yet we do it over and over again. Should God have mercy on us based on anything? Not at all. What in the world is this that Jesus says? He is talking at this point on our behalf as the great high priest. 
Father, forgive them, untie the weight and the burden of their sin. He's asking that as the great high priest. Indeed, we don't know what we're doing. They didn't know what they were doing in terms of the greater reason and the greater plan that God has. The Son of God has to go through these things. That's the part they don't understand. But we all should understand why he truly does go through them for us. We are not ignorant about God's plan of salvation, that his innocent son has to die so that we can be let off. It is not based on righteousness. It's not based upon justice. It's an astounding kind of grace that none of us can truly, really comprehend. But on this Good Friday, I pray that we do comprehend it by faith of a child that simply believes what the great high priest is saying and believing that his prayer has power, that the Father would forgive us, not based on ignorance, but based on faith-given trust. Amen. And the peace of God that passes understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Sermon number two, the second word of Jesus on the cross, taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This sermon is delivered by Pastor Terry Hose. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Remember me. Is that a question? Or is it a request? I've often been asked the questions as I run into some of my students that I taught long, long ago. That becomes a very difficult thing to remember. There's some fourth grade students that I had maybe some 40 years ago. Uh, and for that person, they say, do you remember me? And there's sort of, there's an anxiety in both of our eyes. Me, because I don't know who it is. But also, that person that hopes to be recognized. And maybe there's something that's been problematic in their life, and they're troubled now. And they hope, and they wish. Oh, does Mr. Hazy, or now Pastor Hazy, remember me? On the other hand, remember me can be a request. A request that someone makes of you or me as they are parting and knowing they will not, we will not see each other for some period of time. In the Passion account that was just read, one of the criminals calls out, and repeatedly, the verb in the Greek lets us know that. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's not a question. Do you remember me? It's an entreaty, an urgent one. But now, we need to ask the question. What does he mean when he says, remember me? 
Certainly it's, don't remember me, a sinner. That's the last thing he wants to have Jesus remember, his sins. For remember, if thou, O Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He would cry out with David, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. Or with Asaph, Oh, do not remember my former iniquities. Or with Isaiah, Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. This thief, this criminal, this robber, was born a sinner. Yet sinned. He was guilty of the sins of commission and omission. He had violated the law of the land. He had been arrested. He had been prosecuted. He had been sentenced. Death by crucifixion. And even minutes earlier, he had sinned. Both Matthew and Luke's account tell us that both of those that were crucified reviled and insulted Jesus. Remember me. The last thing that that criminal wanted was Jesus to remember his sins. Well then, what is he saying? Here's a man who had come to the clear realization that he was justly being punished for what he had done wrong. For the scripture does say, the soul that sins, it shall die. The scripture says, God will by no means clear the guilty. This man is going to be standing before the judgment seat of God, and the verdict will not be pretty. Something a whole lot worse than death by crucifixion. The fire of hell. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is a plea for mercy. That in mercy, Jesus would remember him. For over and over repeatedly in the Old Testament, there are words that affirm this merciful nature of God. Our Lenten season began with a reading from the prophet Joel, who recasts and again speaks the words that the Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or the psalmist who says, Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindness, for they have been of old. Yes, O Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But we go on. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. O Lord, we say with David, remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. But according to thy mercy, remember me for thy goodness sake. 
O Lord, do not remember our former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. For we, for you, for me, for the criminal have been brought very low. The criminal heard the first word the Savior spoke from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But there's this problematic question. What about me? What about me? Is there forgiveness for me, this poor, miserable, lamentable, lost, and condemned sinner? And here we have an expression of true repentance. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Contrition and faith, terror and trust, sorrow over sin and confidence that Jesus is the friend of sinners. There's a second Martin that's important to us. The first is Martin Luther, but the second Martin Chemnitz. And Martin Chemnitz says that this scene, like a number of others in the scripture, Nathan and David, Jesus and the paralytic, Jesus and the sinful woman who anointed his feet, as that of private confession and absolution. And so he receives absolution. He hears those wonderful words. Today, not a thousand years from now in purgatory, but today you will be with me in paradise. Absolution has been pronounced. And I love how Martin Chemnitz describes it. He says, in the same way, also, the general preaching of the gospel does not often satisfy a troubled and disturbed conscience, nor does it give the comfort that suffices to strengthen the weak and feeble faith. Therefore, the conscience, because of its unworthiness, is troubled above all by this doubt in temptations, thinking perhaps the blessings and divine promises are not intended for me. Since I am unworthy and defiled by many sins. In order then, Chemnitz goes on to write. In order then that consciences might have a thorough, sure and strong comfort in temptation. Christ not only taught the gospel in general but proclaim forgiveness of sins privately to individual penitents or to use the words of Jesus to the penitent thief. Today, you will be with me in paradise. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. The next sermon, the third word of Jesus from the cross. Jesus said to his mother, woman, this is your son, and then he said to the disciple, this is your mother. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. This sermon is preached by Pastor Terry Knitz. Here we go. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus the Christ. Amen. Our text is the gospel lesson just read. For all you Missouri Synod Lutherans who like your sermons full of law and gospel, there's plenty here to chew upon. The law is right in your face from the very beginning. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, our text begins. What could be clearer law than that? A criminal paying for his crimes with crucifixion. Standing guard at the cross are not the four Roman soldiers whose duty it was to be there. No, standing guard are the women. The soldiers are off someplace in their greed playing dice for Jesus' clothing. The women, in the face of the jeering crowds, the insults, stand firm. They keep watch. When Peter and James and Philip and Andrew and Thomas and Nathaniel and all the rest of the disciples had fled, deserting Jesus, the women stood in the shadow of the cross. When with them was one solitary disciple, the beloved disciple, the one who had put his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. We have no need or time this afternoon to go into how our brothers from Rome torture this text into saying all kinds of things that it doesn't say about Mary's presence under the cross. The actual text has plenty for us to consider. When Jesus nailed in agony and pain to his cross suspended between heaven and earth, looks down upon the women, the faithful women, and the disciple whom he loved. Jesus' concern was not for himself. His care was not the rusty, jagged nails which ripped at his flesh or the blood and gore seeping from the wounds which grew larger with every movement. No, Jesus' concern is for those around him. He asked his father on behalf of the soldiers, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus intercedes for the thief on the cross, promising, Today you shall be with me in paradise after the thief makes his confession of faith. And focusing on Mary, who gave birth to him in a stable, because there was no room for them at the inn, Jesus says to her, Woman. Now, this word woman is the exact same word that Jesus used to address his mother, at the marriage table in Cana. In Cana, it sounds perhaps a little harsh, a little abrupt. But here, using the same word, we see that's not the case at all. At Cana, he used the word to show Mary's position in relationship to himself. Here, it conveys love and concern. 
a concern which flows from the cross to Mary and across time to each of you sitting here this afternoon. How did all this seeming evil mess come about? How did the Son of Man end up nailed to a tree outside the city gates of Jerusalem the Golden? Can we piece it together like some gigantic, gruesome jigsaw puzzle? Who do you think is really more responsible for Jesus being upon the cross? Was it the scribes and the Pharisees? Certainly they're the ones who hired all the false witnesses. They're the ones who paid 30 pieces of silver to Judas. They're the ones who got people to lie and bring false charges against Jesus. Or perhaps you think the crowd was more to blame. They shouted, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Or perhaps you want to lay it at the feet of the Romans. After all, they had the hammer and nails. You know, every year a key feature of our Lenten worship is to walk with Jesus toward the events of Holy Week through a rehearsal of the Passion history. Every time I hear that history read, I can sort of see myself as one of the characters in the story. It's not so difficult to do if you're honest with yourself. There's Peter, who after promising never to desert his Lord, did. Or perhaps you see yourself more like John Mark, who dropped his robe and ran naked into the night when the soldiers came to arrest Christ. Or perhaps you see yourself in the role of the woman standing at the foot of the cross. But there are some characters I don't think any of us associate ourselves with. Certainly none of us see ourselves as a Judas or Herod or Pilate Certainly none of us sees ourselves as Barabbas. Murderers is something that we're not. But wait just a second. I think you know what's coming, don't you? That passage from 1 John 3. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. My friends... You're just like Barabbas. All of you are little Barabbases. You have murder in your heart, lies on your lips, and lust in your eyes. You don't keep God's commandments. You don't put God first always. You put yourself first, or your spouse first, or your children first, or if it isn't a person, you put money, or power, or prestige first. We're all like Barabbas. How did Jesus end up on the cross? He was put there as a substitute for Barabbas. That cross was destined for Barabbas. But Jesus 
took his place. Barabbas is you. Barabbas is every man. We're all just like Barabbas. The crimes, the murders, the rebellion, the sins, all must be paid for. And Jesus paid for them with his own blood. That punishment and suffering and death are by right yours. That would be fair. That would be just. But it's not God's plan of salvation. Jesus takes the sinner's place. He takes your place on the cross. So, Jesus takes the punishment, but he gives you the reward. Jesus takes death, but he gives you eternal life. The scripture passage from Isaiah makes it clear. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Amen. Amen. The next sermon, the fourth word of Jesus from the cross, taken from Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This sermon is delivered by Pastor Jonathan Krenz. Here we go. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Only the damned in hell really understand what it means to be forsaken by God. We sometimes speak of God-forsaken places, and sometimes we ourselves feel God-forsaken in our guilt or in our suffering. And while that feeling should certainly always be taken very seriously, and by the way, if you ever feel that way, go directly to your pastor, the reality of the matter is quite different. God has not forsaken you. Anything but. In fact, that's the point of what Jesus here says in our text as he prays Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by the Father that you never be forsaken by the Father. To be forsaken by God is the punishment of sin. It's the definition of hell. We can't even imagine what it would be like to be forsaken by God, to totally lack the good that He provides to us even when we're suffering, even when we don't recognize that good. What would it be like to have absolutely no good whatsoever? It would be hell. It would be God-forsaken hell. And that's what Jesus suffers on the cross. That's what Jesus suffers in your place as your substitute. He is forsaken by God so that you never have to be forsaken by God.
The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the intersection of God's love and his justice. God is love. As a result, he loves the creation. He loves you. He does not desire the death of the sinner, but that he turn from his evil way and live. And yet, there's your sin. It must be dealt with. Because God is just. He cannot simply sweep our sin under the rug as if it never happened. He is not, contrary to popular belief, the kindly grandfather that winks at his mischievous grandchildren. He cannot ignore sin. He hates sin. What would we call a judge who lets murderers off the hook? We would call that judge unjust. But they said they were sorry. They said that they'd never do it again. It doesn't matter. Murder cannot be ignored. In the same way, if God ignored our sin, he would be an unjust God. So what to do with it? How does God reconcile his love and his justice? From eternity, divine wisdom conceived a solution. I will send my son. I will send my beloved. I will send him to take on their their flesh, to take their place, to suffer their punishment. I will deal with their sin there, in his flesh, on his cross. And in this way, I will make the unlovable loved. I will forsake him, thus I will never forsake them. So our Lord Jesus, in willing obedience to the Father, takes your sin into himself and takes up your cross to make the payment of your sin. If you're ever tempted to think that you are God-forsaken, look at a crucifix. Grasp it in your hand and you say to yourself, God can never forsake me. For my Lord Jesus Christ has been forsaken by God in my place. God poured out his justice upon my Savior. His wrath is spent. There is no more punishment left, for Christ has taken it all. And he has purchased me for God with his own blood. I belong to him. But perhaps you've suffered profound afflictions of body and soul. What about that? If suffering is not God forsaking you, then what is it? Well, believe it or not, suffering is God's blessing to you. It is God's gift to you, given by grace and in love. Because in suffering, God breaks all your idols in pieces. All the things that you fear, love, and trust above him, he will have you holy to himself. He will not share you with other gods. So he drives you to despair of yourself and all other resources. He drives you to himself alone for help and salvation. He drives you to prayer. He drives you to cast your burdens upon him, even to pray the prayer that our Lord here prays from the cross, Psalm 22, only now to pray it as one who is in Christ, who is not forsaken, 
because Christ was forsaken in your place. To pray it as one who can say in Christ, My God, my God, the prayer of faith. God lays upon you the precious and holy cross, and He promises to use it for your good. God works great good even out of great evil, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, it's true. In many cases, you won't be given to know in this earthly life what that good is that God is accomplishing in your suffering. It is a divine mystery beyond investigation. You live by faith, not by sight. You simply hold here to the promise. Your suffering is not a punishment for your sin. The Lord Jesus already took care of that on His cross. Rather, Jesus Christ was forsaken by God on His cross that you might never be forsaken. And God will use all things together for your good. Just as He worked all things for your good in the suffering and death of His dear Son, Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook Jesus to reconcile his love for you and his justice against your sin, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is to say, God forsook Jesus so that you can be absolutely certain. God will never forsake you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The next sermon is the fifth word of Jesus from the cross, from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28. I thirst. The sermon is delivered by Pastor Kenneth Baumberger. Here we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was tohu vabohu, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Consider this utterance of our Lord, I thirst. It's only one word in the Greek, dipso, and yet it communicates the extreme dire situation of Christ's experience. He truly thirsts. He who without a recorded word created the waters from which all life would spring, now is without that cooling, refreshing, sweet relief that dehydration demands. Three simple little molecules are denied him. Two of hydrogen, one of oxygen. But it's no big deal, isn't it? Haven't we all been a little bit thirsty before? Jesus has. He knows about thirst. Whoever offers a cup of cool water to one of these little ones will by no means lose his reward. He understands how people get thirsty. Most of us right now are probably a little bit dehydrated. 
how much more a man living in Palestine during the reign of the first Caesars. It's hot there. Dehydration is common. But not now. This is an uncommon dehydration for Christ crucified. It's not only thirsting for something to drink. Now the last we hear of our Lord um, with something to drink is at the Last Supper, but we're not told even there that he did drink anything. He took the chalice, blessed it, and gave it to the disciples to drink. His divine gift of his blood in the chalice for us Christians to drink takes a toll. <clears throat> Our Lord sweated great drops of blood before his arrest. Blood loss dehydrates people. The fervor and anguish with which he prayed for us was not without price. Go up to a window, especially in winter, and exhale on it and you'll see the condensation Reveal how much water vapor is naturally in your breath. You dehydrate yourself simply by talking. And our Lord exhausted himself interceding that night for his disciples. He drained the dregs of the cup of the Father's wrath. He got drunk on suffering and pain and punishment which we should have been forced to drink. He needs water. He needs real physical relief. So much for those who claim his death was a farce. But this is a different kind of thirst. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Christ is the blessed man by whom we are all blessed. Blessed is he who thirsted after righteousness. Righteousness for you. His righteousness for you. Righteousness to cover your drunken debauchery like Noah naked in the tent. You were naked in your soul before God until Christ disrobed himself, climbed up onto the cross, and took off his dignity, righteousness, innocence, blessedness, and hung there immobile, pinioned on the cross for three hours in order that he might clothe your nakedness with his holiness, to quench your dry and dusty bones with his life-giving water, the righteousness of God himself. He bathed and washed you liberally, richly, luxuriously in the washing of regeneration in his own holiness. He's the one who created all things, and he created water, and it has denied him. He is the source, the very spring of living water, which if a man drink of it, he will thirst nevermore. But Jesus is dying of thirst. Have you ever watched Survivor Man? It's one of my favorite outdoor survival programs. The guy goes hither and yon in different outdoor survival programs and uh, uh, faces... Um, whatever climate or uh, terrain or wild beasts there may be. Uh, but the most dangerous episodes are always the ones where he just can't find enough water to drink. And he films all, himself. So 
you kind of see the desperation and the little crazy ticks that happen when you start to lose your mind because of lack of water. So he'll get desperate and sometimes call for a rescue, emergency lift out, all for water. Christ Jesus is no survivor man for television. His plan is not to survive, but to surrender his life for yours. He willingly submits to the lack of life-saving hydration so that you may drink freely from the font of everlasting life. It is for you that the Lord Jesus thirsts. It is for your salvation, your righteousness that is received from him for which he hungers and thirsts so desperately, so much that he is willing to die in order to draw you to himself so that he may lavish upon you his own righteousness. Come then and drink deep, rich, soul-quenching drafts from the fountain of life, the Lord God, whose breath hovered over the surface of the waters. Come, drink, and be sated, be refreshed, be hydrated, be cooled with his love for you. Come, drink, and never thirst or lack for righteousness again. For Christ's righteousness covers you completely. His grace has drowned your sins and lifted you aloft. Let us pray. Draw us unto you, Lord Jesus Christ, that we may hear your gracious gospel and be refreshed with the living water of everlasting life. May we thirst thy love to know. Lead us in our sin and woe where the healing waters flow. Hear us, holy Jesu. Amen. Amen. The Sermon on the Sixth Word of Jesus on the Cross is uh, preached by Pastor Mark Love. The text reads, They put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and handed over his spirit. The Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 29 through 30. Here's Pastor Mark Love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It is finished. Do we grasp all that these words embrace? Finished are the demands of the law. Finished are the demands of the law for me and upon me. Finished is the wrath of God against me. Finished is his anger. Yes, yes, amen. It is finished. Say it with me. Yes, the demands of the law are finished. Atonement has been made. So why? Why, O my soul, are you so downcast within me? If these all be finished, why is it, O my soul, that I have so little peace? Why is it that I am even more seemingly burdened? Why is it that I go day by day wrestling in my own heart, wrestling with my guilt, wrestling with the accusations my sins would raise against me, seeming to pin me down, seeming to sour all that I would see and do. Souring it with all that I have not done, souring it with all that I have poorly done, all that I have meanly done, 
all that I have left undone. If all be finished, why, O oh my soul, am I so vexed? I am I so vexed that I do not believe that he has finished what is needed finishing for me. Surely I see myself totally unfinished and unable to finish, being a good pastor, a good husband, a good father, a good friend a good whatever the Lord has given me to be. Whatever I have done, whatever I have finished, oh, the poverty of my finishing, oh, how wrongly finished, oh, how pathetically done. And if I do not sour what I have done, surely the comments and the criticisms of others would seem to crowd in upon and sour all that I have done. If it is finished, why, oh, my soul, do I live to be busy, Praying enough, repenting enough, saying everything rightly enough, studying enough, being busy enough, being busy doing, serving enough, sacrificing more. All in the desperate attempt, the desperate hope that if I but do, if I but say, if I but somehow can do just enough, it will silence the sour sounds of my accusers. It will silence the fault finders. It will quiet even my own sinful heart, so that I might believe the Lord could smile on me. If it is finished, why do I struggle, O my soul? Why have I so little peace? Have you come to this Friday, to like this at any other day, with seemingly always having to taste of the sour, of the undone, the poorly done, the unfinished. Surely I come and I am so vexed. Surely I am so troubled. Surely, oh my soul, I am so down because I do not want him to finish what is left undone. Surely, oh my soul, I wish to finish what he has finished. For I want something for me. I want the glory to be mine. I want the approval to be mine. I want the praise to, the praise to be mine. And oh my soul, how long I hunger to finish things in such a way to prove to those who have judged me, those who have said wrongly of me that they were wrong and I was right. Surely I do not, oh my soul, want him to finish what is unfinished for me. For I wish to prove to myself, to my own, my own heart, that I am good enough, that I am other than I am. My accusers know me to be, and Almighty God has come to save me as. But the more I strive, O oh my soul, the more I wrestle with myself to be done with me and with others so as to somehow have quiet, to have hope, to have peace, the more I am by my own hands, by my own undoneness undone, and I am finished. I am brought to the nothing my sin has made of me, O oh my soul. And what do I find in this finish? In this end, 
There I find the most beloved Son of God, saying to me, not angrily, not annoyingly, not frustratedly, but softly and tenderly and assuredly, it is finished. And because it is finished, I have rescued you. It is finished, and now there is no more condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. So bring me, O Spirit of the living God, call to me, call to my soul, and bring me to this cross. Bring me daily, bring me hourly, bring me minute by minute to this cross, to this Savior, as my sins would rise up against me, as the sour sounds of my guilt would fill my ears. Bring me to this beloved Savior, that I and my sins, I and my accusers might hear his words to me. It is finished, that it may be finished. Bring, O Spirit of the living God, my soul and all the judgments and condemnations, those of the law of God, those of my own sinful nature and those of the world, be they petty, shallow, and so self-righteous. Bring them all with me to this cross, to this Son of God, that they might hear him, hear with me as he says to me and to them, it is finished, and in hearing let them and me be finished. Bring Satan and his accusations. Bring my truth as great as it may be. Bring it all, O Spirit of the living God, that Satan, my accusers, and my truth may hear. It is finished. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Hear us, O Lord, as we pray. O Lord, you brought yourself to my finish, and you finished me on the cross. You brought me to your finish in my baptism and finished me. Keep me finished in you, O Lord, that having all things finished for me, I might walk in newness of life, by faith and not by sight as all is finished. Amen. Amen. The seventh and final sermon on the seventh word of Jesus on the cross is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 46, which reads, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This sermon is delivered by Pastor David Fleming. Here we go. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus says this at the end of the three hours of darkness. This is the sign that the world is coming unhinged. It's wobbling out of control, as Luke puts it bluntly, the sun failed. It just quit. It didn't do its work. This wasn't an eclipse. There's a full moon at Passover. Couldn't have been an eclipse. The sun just failed. The sun failed. The earth shook. The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. 
The world is coming unglued, unhinged. It's wobbling out of control. It is the end. It's a broken thing. And you know how broken this world is. You know it in the stuff you see every day, the dead squirrel I drove by on Ridgemore on the way over here today. The broken stuff in your house that clutters your basement or your attic or your closet. The clothes that don't fit anymore. You know it's broken because of the nasty, mean things people have said and done to you. You know it's broken because you know what goes on inside of your own heart and your own thinking. What a disaster area we all are. There's something interesting about when things are broken. For us non-engineers, not like our dear Pastor Cheryl, us non-engineers, the only time we get to see what the parts are inside of a thing is precisely when it's broken. When I was a kid, we had this nice radio, well, it had worked for a while, and it was supposed to get short band channels as well, but it wasn't working, and so trusty little 10-year-old Dave Fleming went at it with a screwdriver and maybe a pliers and a hammer or two, something, got in there, took it all apart, and I separated out its parts, and I laid them all out and looked at them in wonder, each of them, not knowing what all these little things were, although except that little cord that wrapped around the little tuning knob and moved the little needle, I could figure that much out. And I then tried to reassemble these parts and then fix this radio. <laughs> didn't go so well. But I learned that when something was broken, you could see its parts. At death, what God put together, a body and a soul, at death we can see that we're really made of these two parts. We don't see it in normal living. A person looks like just one thing. We don't look like body and soul separate. People talk about selling their souls to Satan. Oh, come on. What's that mean? We have no idea. Sure looks like they still are the same as everybody else. Maybe a little nastier than other people. Our soul and body are together. But when someone dies, we see these things come apart. Oh, one professor compared it to a ceramic coffee mug. It's a mug with a handle. It's one thing, but if you throw that mug on the ground hard, it'll break in pieces. Maybe you'll be lucky and you'll get it to separate into the handle and the mug so you can see these two parts. But, of course, the only way you see the two parts is when it's broken. Jesus in a broken world, hangs on the cross, and here he is broken for us. And you can see it, for his soul leaves his body, and his body is left there, just plain dead. A broken thing. It's interesting, when he does commit his soul to the Father, he quotes from a psalm. 
Isn't this like our Lord? He quotes from this beautiful Psalm 31, a a psalm of confident trust in God. Not a whining complaint. It's bold. It's confident. It's the trust of a beloved son. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm putting it there, Father, with you. I am confident. I trust you. You love me. You are my salvation. And so I commit my soul to your keeping. Edward Riojas, we call him the artist in residence here, whose work is largely covered before your eyes right now, painted another polyptic over on the other side of the state, Grace and Fairgrove. And there in the painting where it talks about, it's a hymn praying that God would take our souls to God uh, when we die. And uh, it's this prayer that he would keep our souls in safekeeping. And then there's one little picture there in the narthex before it breaks into the resurrection. It's the hand of the Father holding the saints, the souls of those who have died in Christ. And they're all happy. And they're all safe. And they are all well. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, in his brokenness, knows and gives to us this beautiful gift that in Christ we can die in complete confidence. Our souls rest in his peace, in his paradise. It is not an awful, terrible moment, only it is an awful, terrible moment. It is the sign of our brokenness, but it is also the moment of great and wonderful beginning of a new thing, the beginning of peace. And that's what we see here as Jesus says these words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We do see the end. We see the end of a world of sin and brokenness and death forever. We see the end of all that is shameful and wrong, all paid for, all washed away, all done in by the death of Jesus, all of it gone. And the world is out of control because it's all fallen apart. But look... There is a new thing begun here too. This is the giant hinge of history, the fulcrum from which now everything turns. For now in Jesus committing his soul to the Father, now in his complete payment for all our rebellion, now in his taking on all that is broken in you and me and in this world, he begins a completely new thing. Luke says it in one word. Uh, We say it in English. He breathed out his last. In the Greek, it's more like, well, it's out and spirit. uh, Expired is about as close as we can get in English. Expired. Breathed out. His spirit goes out. His spirit goes out from the cross. Well, if you go to Roman Catholic bookstores, I imagine there's some others too that have this, but they'll have these crucifixes where Jesus' left arm is nailed to the cross, but his right arm is reaching down with a dove in his hand. I guess the Holy Spirit that he's handing to us. It's a beautiful sentiment. 
But it's not the way it happened. No, he remains totally fixed to our brokenness. But as he commits his spirit to the Father, he also breathes out this spirit on us broken people. The spirit of wholeness and forgiveness and peace and trust. And how does he breathe this spirit out on us? By his word, which is why we've been here for the seven words of Jesus. It's his word that has his spirit. You want to know where the Holy Spirit is? It's where the word of Jesus is. There it is. Your forgiveness, your peace, delivered to you in words, delivered to you in words connected to water, delivered to you in words connected to bread and wine that then are his body and blood for your forgiveness. There Jesus continually delivers to you this new thing that he starts at the cross, this new creation, this new testament in his blood, for his spirit has borne all our brokenness and now delivers all of the new fullness forever. Thanks be to God that Jesus, in our place, turns it all around, takes away everything broken in us, and gives it all back to us, made whole and new. And that day is coming, dear friends in Christ, that day is coming. Yes, probably when our souls will rest in the Father's care, but that even greater day is coming when your body and mine will pop out of our graves, made whole and new, unless our Lord returns first, in which case you don't have to die, which would be kind of nice. But if we die, our bodies, like Jesus' body, will be resurrected and made whole and new again. No more glasses, no more walkers, no more hearing aids, no more pain. No more aching minds, no more vacant minds, no more aching bodies, no more trouble. Just fullness of life that God intended from the very beginning. All because Jesus was broken, that we might be made whole. Thanks be to God, in Jesus' name. The peace of God which passes all our understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.